You are listening to a Natural Products Insider podcast. With Steve Myers, Senior Editor. Brought to you by Supply Side West, November 6 through 10 in Las Vegas. Welcome to this Supply Side West edition of the Healthy Insider Podcast. With me today is the Dean of the University of Memphis's School of Health Studies, Dr. Richard Bloomer. Welcome. Thank you, Steve. I uh, appreciate the opportunity. So now at the University of Memphis, you have in your School of Health Studies, you have several uh, research laboratories, and you specifically are the director of the Cardiorespiratory Metabolic Laboratory. Is that right? That is correct, yes. I have been here have, for about 14 years, yes. And you have about six or seven others. I assume as the dean, you're probably at the very least well aware of what they're going on, maybe somewhat involved in some of the other laboratories? Uh, we, yes, I am. We actually have several um, faculty members that pursue work from cell culture to a small animal study to full-blown human randomized placebo-controlled clinical trials. So very aware of what's happening, uh, publications, uh, external support in terms of both industry and federal uh, grants. So try to keep up to date on what people are doing and um, it puts me in a better position to support them. Sounds good. Well, I noticed that some of the other laboratories dabble in exercise-related com, um, topics as well. And uh, and I know that despite the name of it might not jump out um, your laboratory, but you do a lot of work in this area as well. Maybe you can kind of give us an idea of what you do there at the lab that involves exercise and, you know, nutraceuticals, especially um, sports-related. Yeah, so we actually have done a a great deal of work in the field of exercise-induced oxidative stress and damage. Um, Started that work, again, back probably 15-plus years ago. And I think we've answered a number of questions uh, related to the type of exercise, the form, the intensity of exercise that generally will bring about the greatest degree of oxidative stress, oxidative damage. Um, In addition to that, we, of course, focus on ways to minimize that damage. First and foremost, it's regular exercise training. A trained individual is much more protected than would be an untrained individual, but In addition, we looked at nutrients as intervention tools to minimize the degree of oxidative damage and some of those associated parameters, whether it be impaired force production, uh, muscle soreness, decreased range of motion, uh, performance decrements, things of that sort. So we established actually uh, about three years ago now a a center for nutraceutical and dietary supplement research and individuals that are listening could look at the website memphis.edu backslash nutraceutical um, to learn more about that. But we do work, again, from cell culture all the way up through uh, human clinical trial work related to either isolated ingredients or, in some cases, finished dietary supplements that could be found on the store shelves. And we've worked with industry sponsors for uh, many years at this point, uh, many of whom will probably be exhibiting at the uh, at the supply side show. And we're going to get into oxidative stress. That's part of what you're um you put up what you're doing at Supply Side West. 
Um, Dr. Bloomer will be speaking at the, in the Nutritional Strategies for Exercise Recovery Workshop, and that's Thursday, November 8th from 2 o'clock to 4 p.m. Um, in the convention center there in Las Vegas for Supply Side West. And there you're going to talk about um, a little bit about inflammation, a little bit about oxidative stress and how it relates to um, exercise and recovery from. But, um, but today I thought maybe we could, we could just talk a little bit about oxidative stress. You know, why, why do athletes and active consumers uh, need to be aware of oxi oxidative stress um, induced by exercise? Is this completely a bad thing? Um, what can happen? Why, what causes this? Maybe you can explain a little bit, you know, frame, frame why they need to know about oxidative stress. Yes, uh, great question, um, Steve. A whole lot has been written about this. In fact, uh, a handful of years ago, a colleague of mine um, and myself wrote an article that detailed the 30-year history behind exercise-induced oxidative stress. And at that time, I think there were over 300 peer-reviewed scientific manuscripts just discussing that particular topic. So at this point, I would imagine there's probably 400 or so uh, peer-reviewed articles that listeners can pull from PubMed and other sources related to this. So obviously a topic of interest. Um, generally speaking, as I alluded to a little bit earlier, um, when individuals engage in, in strenuous uh, exercise or physical activity, um, we can see a rise in what we refer to as reactive oxygen and nitrogen species, um, a variety of different sources, and I'll probably get into some of that uh, during the talk at the show. But when these things are elevated in such a quantity that they overwhelm our body's ability to render these inactive through endogenous antioxidant sources as well as exogenous antioxidants that we may consume through dietary sources, uh, we, we get into a state known as oxidative stress or oxidative damage. So there's simply an imbalance between the production of these reactive oxygen species and our body's ability to, to handle these or process these. And what can happen then, of course, is we see oxidative modification to a variety of molecules, you know, whether it be lipids or proteins or DNA, some of which could lead to uh, functional loss if it's you know, protein-specific, as an example. Sometimes we see that with the lipid membrane being oxidized. You see leakage of various components that normally reside inside the cell, and they tend to leak into the cell. You know, with exercise, we generally see this with something known as creatine kinase, or CK, and that activity um, happens to increase substantially with, with tissue damage some of which may be uh, resulting from an increase in, in lipid-specific oxidative stress or lipid peroxidation. So why is this problematic? Um, a lot of individuals have tied this increase in oxidative stress to disease because there is a very strong association between oxidative stress and human disease, and there's a whole literature on that question becomes, is it the oxidative stress that's causing the disease or is the disease leading to an increase in some of these oxidized uh, molecules? And that's something that, you know, obviously people are continuing to study. So I don't want listeners to think, well, if exercise is causing an increase and oxidative stress is potentially bad, that maybe I shouldn't be exercising because that's, that's absolutely not the case. And I'll, I'll state that uh, by following with the idea that because individuals engage in regular strenuous exercise, 
they are protected against future assaults that may be of similar magnitude. And a lot of that protection is due to the principle of hormesis and an upregulation specifically in endogenous antioxidant protective mechanisms. Um, so we see that individuals who are, are well-trained, they can undergo a very strenuous bout of exercise and the oxidative stress response oftentimes is quite minimal. Um, which has led a lot of people to say, well, maybe we don't need any sort of additional protection in terms of antioxidants, et cetera. So I'll discuss that a little bit at the show as well. Now, do you have a sense, do researchers in this area have a sense of how strenuous exercise has to be um, to, to sort of cause a more problematic um, oxidative state, um, maybe duration, intensity? Yes, there's, there's been studies um, that have focused on both, and, and we've done some of that work as well as others, but the volume of intensity does seem to dictate the response. For example, there's groups that have done work with individual athletes that run the ultramarathons and the extreme uh, duration aerobic exercise events, and generally speaking, those events are met despite the, the very high level of training of these athletes they still see increased oxidative stress, increased inflammation with these individuals. But keep in mind, these people are running sometimes 100 miles in that sort of uh, race. So there's a lot of tissue trauma um, you know, going on there, a lot of oxygen exchange, et cetera. Um, but at the same time, intensity of exercise, if we're undergoing, let's say, a run at 60% of VO2 max versus a run at 85% of VO2 max, or sprinting versus you know jogging or walking, generally speaking, you see an, a, a greater increase as the intensity of exercise increases. That being said, um, a very well-trained individual, if the intensity is relatively moderate and the duration is not extreme, sometimes really they don't see much of an increase. And that's generally what we've found in our work and, and others have found uh, similar findings as well. So is this more for aerobic exercise, or does it cut it's, across? It's really all? both. That's a that's a great question. So with aerobic exercise, generally speaking, you see an increase that is a little quicker to manifest. So if we're in a laboratory and we have individuals undergo an aerobic exercise challenge where we're not anticipating much muscle damage, so maybe they're riding a cycle for an hour, or they're they're doing a run for you know 45 minutes or something along those lines the increase in oxygen consumption, increase in mitochondria electron transport, uh, increased catecholamine production, et cetera, generally speaking, that can cause an increase in these reactive oxygen species. But with exercise that involves tissue trauma, um, let's say high-intensity, high-force resistance training where there's muscle fiber injury that's mechanical, and you see proteolysis, inflammation, you know, prostanoid production, uh, calcium imbalance, things of that sort, you may see more of a delayed onset in increase in these uh, oxidized biomolecules. So it's not uncommon to have very strenuous exercise performed and maybe see a greater increase at a day or two after exercise versus the immediate one to two hours post-exercise. Now, short of visiting a lab like yours, 
how would the average athlete or especially, you know, an active consumer, weekend warrior, if you will, and how would they know what their risk is of of oxidative stress from exercise? Are there any clues to look out for? You know, there have been and there may still be. I know I've seen them in the past. Um, home test kit, almost like a reagent test strip that you might test, um, you know, blood glucose with or ketone body or something like that through urine stream uh, for something called T-bars, which is a lipid okay. uh, peroxidation marker. Um, how beneficial that would be for someone to measure that, um, you know, kind of as a snapshot approach, that, that I don't know. Because generally when we do this, we try to do baseline and then serial measurements to really capture a better picture of what's going on as opposed to just a one-time snapshot. I think the reality, Steve, is that if people are concerned at all about oxidative damage, oxidative stress, um, and they're willing to do something to try to minimize that, the best thing they could do would be to engage in a very regular and appropriate specific program of exercise number one, and number two, try to minimize the consumption of certain foods that we know can induce also an increase in reactive oxygen species. And, I, and we'll, I'll get into that a little bit um, at the show, but I say that because a few years ago, we did a study where we compared both moderate intensity exercise, it was cycling exercise at about 60 to 70% of VO2 max for an hour, with extreme intensity exercise, very high force sprints um, done for certain periods of time. All that compared to just sitting down in a chair and sipping a high-fat, high-sugar-laden milkshake. And what I'll tell you, and this is in a group of trained men, um, even the highest intensity of exercise, not much of an increase at all based on the training status. But when they sat down and consumed that milkshake meal, which is about a thousand or so calories, so you know, pretty high calorie milkshake, but not that atypical to a typical commercial milkshake, we saw a massive increase in oxidative stress biomarkers, both lipid, protein, et cetera. Um, just sitting in a chair, sipping on a really high fat, um, high sugar rich milkshake meal. So if people are trying to minimize that oxidative stress response, or their overall oxidative stress status, I would say exercise on a regular basis and try to avoid the regular consumption of high-fat, high-sugar-rich foods because we know that both of those can increase oxidative stress. No shamrock shakes post-exercise. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? I think it's it's reasonable to say certain things taste really good, and on occasion I'm going to have it and I'm going to enjoy it. Okay, but the problem we see is the, a typical Western diet where people are consuming that sort of food, you know, pretty much every day and sometimes, you know, frequently throughout the day. I think that becomes problematic. But on occasion, you know, having a milkshake shouldn't be shouldn't be any problem at all. Sure. I mean, it's an aside, but I was just recently going to the airport and um, I think it was Arizona State. There was an Arizona State team, a volleyball team was coming through and uh or and men's soccer and and I couldn't believe the stuff they were buying from the uh from the airport uh, snack store 
you know, knowing, yeah. you know, doing what I do, I was thinking, oh boy, I guess you get away with that when you're that young. But so then, um, without really having, without laboratory involvement, um, there's probably a little way to know for sure if, um, if you have a problem with antioxidant stress. So for the average sports nutrition consumer, are antioxidants sort of cheap insurance at, at the very least, if not even better than that? You know, that's, that's a great question that probably merits a you know, half a day discussion. Um, <laughs> and, but uh, I, I think in some cases I might say yes, depending on the situation, depending on the overall diet. I personally like to look to dietary intake first, whole food intake, because there's a lot of things sure. that people can benefit from, from whole food. Once they say, hey, look, I'm eating a really clean diet and I'm doing it on a regular basis. I'm exercising regularly and I'm really working hard with a specific plan. I have all that taken care of. I'm sleeping an adequate number of hours per night. My life is in great balance. Now I'm ready to look to dietary supplements. I think that's the best approach. And once they do that, then they may look to, you know, certain antioxidant blends um, that seem to offer some benefit. And there are a lot of studies that support various things and I'll, I'll discuss some of these of course at the show but um, there are there are a number of things where individuals can say I think this is going to provide me with some benefit um, whether it be in terms of preventing or minimizing the exercise induced oxidative stress that may be occurring um, or the feeding induced oxidative stress that may be occurring um, I think that seems reasonable Keeping in mind at the same time that these reactive oxygen species are not all inherently bad. Uh, they, they're there for a reason. Um, they do provide a useful physiologic benefit um, for, uh, for a number of things, from cell signaling to apoptosis, um, et cetera. So even if it was possible to totally eliminate these things, I don't think that would be a smart thing to do. We're trying to simply get ourselves in balance. And that's a good point. That's why I tried to allude to that in the beginning. You know, are these things all bad? Because I think that, especially in a in a dietary um, in markets, you know, or just on the news, you kind of hear like, this is bad, that's bad, fat's bad, this is bad, this is good. Right. And it's not sure. always that black and it's not always that black and white. So, um, you know, the balance the balance there is key. Now, when you, when you also look at the market, especially um, for antioxidants, there's so many antioxidants from all these exotic corners of the world, and and they have these tests to show that they're the more they're the best antioxidant, or you know they can quench more free radicals than the next one, and and uh, and that's all well and good, but there are there are only some that are researched specifically on exercise induced um, oxidative stress, and is that important for people? in this sports nutrition market to realize that while there are so many antioxidants out there, only summer study, is it important for them to stick to the studied ones? I mean, it's begging the question a bit, but I'd like to hear you. Yeah, I think, I think that's a great point because you're right. There are numerous ingredients out there um, and or finished products that may include, you know, multiple ingredients. So key, of course, is to identify the ingredient, the an ingredient or ingredients that have shown to be effective in that particular circumstance, ideally. So if, for example, a study showed that, uh, let's just say lipoic acid was beneficial for combating oxidative stress in obese 
postmenopausal women in a rested state after being treated for 12 weeks, it doesn't necessarily mean that lipoic acid is going to, you know, provide some sort of benefit for young, healthy men undergoing a rugby match. And then following that, their oxidative stress is going to be lower. It may, but because it's totally out of context from where the study was focused on, we don't know the answer to that. So from a scientific point of view, it's really tough for a scientist to go out on a limb and say, this is going to have an effect and we're basing it on this evidence that has nothing at all to do with what we're trying to market it toward. I think that's really key, number one. Number two, the dosing is always an issue because so often, and you're very well aware of this, I'm sure, in the industry, companies rely on studies that have, in fact, shown a pretty sizable effect. Uh, for a particular treatment. The problem is oftentimes when they run into formulation, they end up using a dosage that's nowhere near what the dosage was in the clinical trial. And if that's the case, you're basically violating that principle of I have the right ingredient or drug, in this case supplement, and I have the right dosage. For a, a pharmacologic effect, a physiologic effect, we need to have both the ingredient and the dosage right, not just the ingredient. And that's something I see as a problem, generally speaking, in the industry is that the ingredient dosing is oftentimes so low that even though the study did show a benefit, you're using an ingredient dose that's one-tenth of the effective dose studied, and it's highly unlikely it's going to deliver an effect. That's a good point. And now you'll get into um, some of those more well-researched um, ingredients or blends or products um, during your talk at Supply Side, and I encourage everyone to uh, to check that out. Um, you can go to uh, west.supplysideshow.com and um, click on the education and go to the workshops and find the Nutritional Strategies for Exercise Recovery Workshop. Um, like I said, that's on November 8th, Thursday, 2 to 4 in the afternoon, and, and you'll get into more detail about some of this stuff, but my the one last question I had for you today um was sort of given all the research that you have seen and done and been a part of on exercise induced oxidative stress what kind of questions do you still have about this area where where do you want to see research go what do you want to see research answer in this area like next steps kind of thing maybe well, one or two you know that, that's a good question we've actually um somewhat moves away from the exercise-induced oxidative stress because, frankly, so many answers um, are already available to us. We have an idea of intensity, form, duration, uh, training status, et cetera. One of the things we don't have a lot of literature on is how women in particular respond to the same sort of challenges that men do. There are some studies, of course, that include women um, in combination with men or women exclusively, but by and large, the majority of this work has focused on men. Um, and also, oftentimes, while there have been training studies done, there have been studies done with individuals who are, in fact, well-trained coming in, it would also be interesting to focus on individuals who are the typical, you know, weekend warrior. They're not doing a whole lot, and then they go out and they expose themselves to a very stressful condition that is unaccustomed. Those individuals potentially could benefit more from, let's say, an antioxidant therapy, whether it be prophylactic or, or post the exercise stress, as compared to the individual that's undergoing this, you know, exercise regimen on a regular basis. But 
those are a couple of things of interest. And then for us, really, it's been more of the feeding-induced oxidative stress. And because reality is we can talk about exercise, but a good majority of the population doesn't exercise. And although we want everyone to be engaged in regular exercise, the reality is they're simply not. Um, but everyone does eat. And in this country and in many other countries around the world, individuals eat foods that we know are not conducive to optimal health. And in many ways, they do increase the production of these RONs. So um, looking at methods to potentially minimize the oxidative stress and inflammation owing to uh, single meals or multiple meals, that's something that we've focused on more recently. You know, I'm really happy you mentioned the um, the need for the research on females. Um, we did uh, we did a special digital issue just this past June um, on sports nutrition, the female athlete, and that was one of the big topics was having more research um, on on female athletes and female um, subjects, you know, rather than just relying on all the research done on male athletes. Um, People can find that at naturalproductinsider.com. There's a media asset uh, tab and digital magazines. It was in June, Sports Nutrition, the Female Athlete. And they could find you at Supply Side in just a little under a month. And we welcome everyone there, and we're excited for the uh, we're excited for the exercise recovery session. We thank you for speaking there, and we thank you for joining us today. Uh, Dr. Richard Bloomer will have links to um, all your information at University of Memphis for everyone to check out. And we'll have links to supply sites so everyone can come visit us at the show. Thank you, Doctor, for joining Great. us. Great. Thanks, Steve. Appreciate this it. This concludes our podcast. Thank you, everyone, and uh, tune in for the next Supply Side West Healthy Insider podcast. For more award-winning podcasts from industry experts, go to insider.com and click in the podcast section. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts by searching Healthy Insider Podcast. Hit subscribe to never miss an episode. To join the conversation about the supplement industry, leave a comment on the podcast's Twitter, Facebook, or SoundCloud accounts. This episode has been brought to you by Supply Side West, November 6th through 10 in Las Vegas.